Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, would you turn back to Psalm 16 and uh, perhaps find the outline that you may have been handed on the way in, and uh, that will help you. We're looking at Psalm 16 tonight, and I'll lead us in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray um, that you would open our eyes to the wonder of the resurrection and the hope that it gives to us. And we pray that you would um, open our hearts to that hope and our lives to a right response. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a story I thought I'd begin with today, uh, with apologies to anyone who's Irish. Uh, it's a familiar story, uh, and it's about familiar stories. A man goes to Ireland in search of the famous Irish sense of humour, but he doesn't have much luck. And he's on the day he's uh, due to fly out, and on the way to the airport, decides to go to a pub just for one last meal. Uh, and as he approaches the door to the pub, he hears uproarious laughter coming from the inside. Um, and he enters and finds a big crowd and a man standing on the bar who calls out, 14, and everybody laughs. Uh, then he hops down and somebody else, a lady, gets up on the bar and she says, 9, and everybody laughs. Uh, and he says to the guy next to him, what are, what are you doing? And the guy says, oh, we're telling jokes. I don't do accents, but we're telling jokes. He says, but they're just numbers. What's so funny about these numbers? And the guy says, well, they're very familiar jokes. So instead of wasting time telling the whole joke, we've numbered them and we just say the number and then everybody gets the joke. Uh, and so the visitor says, do you think maybe I could have a turn at telling one? He says, sure, up you go. So he goes up and stands on the bar and a hush descends on the pub. And he says, 79. And the place erupts in laughter. People are falling about, they're holding each other up, they're rolling around on the floor. He's very pleased with himself. He hops down from the bar and he says to his new friend, what's so funny about 79? And the guy says, well, we haven't heard that one before. <laughs> well, um, still waiting, but no, nothing. <laughs> Uh, I may not be telling you anything that you haven't heard before tonight, um, since Easter comes around every year, uh, and there's an Easter Sunday sermon. Uh, you might even feel like I could just get up and say a number, the Easter number, and, uh, or just the word resurrection, and you would all think, ah oh, yes, that's a good one, uh, and we could leave it at that. But I think that perhaps a lot of Christians have a fairly shallow appreciation of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and I'm fairly sure that if we had a greater grasp of its significance, uh, we would have a much more profound trust in Jesus and our lives would be quite different. The resurrection of Jesus is described in the Bible as the first fruits of a massive harvest for eternity of all of God's plans. Uh, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then our vision of the future, uh, like Elise was talking about at the start of the service, is suddenly extended into eternity. Uh, it's like the door has been forced open by Jesus and we can see through it into eternity, which is where we belong if we're in Christ. But perhaps we don't see that as clearly as we should. Perhaps we're fairly stuck in what's going on right here and now. Uh, I'm not a gambling person, but in poker, there's a, this phrase, going all in. Uh, it means betting everything you have on this hand. Uh, more generally, it just means committing everything to a cause and holding nothing back, going all in. If we see the resurrection of Jesus as we should, then we will see every reason to go all in for God rather than holding back for ourselves. 
So we're looking at Psalm 16, and Psalm 16 is the song of a model believer. David himself was not a perfect man, as we know, but he was as close to all in for God as you find in the Old Testament. And the stunning feature of Psalm 16 is the way that David's deep trust in God goes hand in hand with this vision of resurrection, even a thousand years before Jesus came along. And so David shows us how to trust in God in this psalm and the finale of the psalm is trust in resurrection. So as you'll see from that outline, verses 1 to 6 describe the choice that a believer makes and verses 7 to 11 describe the hope that a believer has. Being Easter, I'm going to try and go quickly through the first half and focus on the resurrection bit at the end. So firstly, in verses 1 to 6, we have the choice that believers make. What does going all in for God actually look like? If you are all in for God, then first of all, God will be your refuge. See in verse 1, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. A believer is someone who takes refuge in God. Everyone has a place they go that functions as their refuge or we might call it uh, their happy place, uh, the place where they feel safe and in control and content. Uh, For some it might be in front of the TV is your happy place, maybe with the PS4 controller in your hand. Uh, For others maybe it's a book. Um, For some their refuge is their garden. Uh, For some it's the gym. Uh, It might be that your work is your refuge or it might be when you come home to the family. For some people, it's the bottle or a packet of pills. Uh, For other people, it's sex or pornography. We need places to escape to, and sometimes in our need, we end up in very bad places as our refuge. But everybody needs a refuge, a place where they go. But the believer chooses God as their refuge, their safe place, their happy place. God is their refuge. And that involves choosing God, not only uh, only as your refuge, but as your center. See in verse 2, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my God, apart from you, I have no good thing. Uh, Like a wheel is pretty useless if it's not connected at the hub to the the axle. Our lives are not going to work if God is not at the center and everything else in our life, our life is arranged around that like spokes connected to the hub of the wheel, God at the center. So the believer says to God, you are my Lord, you are the centre, you are the hub. Whatever doesn't connect properly with you uh, doesn't belong in my life. That's what a believer says, verse 2. And that means, if that, that's where the, the place that God occupies in your life, it means thirdly, choosing allegiances with whom you side uh, and with which you associate. Verse 3, I say of the holy people who are in the land... They are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. So this believer plants his flag amongst the people of God. Now, of course, our fellow Christians can be disappointing at times, um, uh, but we are the saints, we are the holy people of God in Christ, and we stand for something that is noble and delightful, even if we don't reflect it particularly well at times. And you have to plant your flag somewhere in this life. And if it's not among the people of God... What does that say about you? Where else are you going to plant your flag if not amongst the people of God? I assume that's part of the reason you're here tonight, to to plant your flag amongst the people of God, many of you. 
Uh, where else are you going to plant it? In verse 4, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. So we mustn't flirt with anything that's not centred on God. Now, does that mean you're going to miss out if you kind of put everything into God uh, and you turn your back on so many of the things that the world lives for but, but you make God your focus? Well, no, you're not going to miss out because we choose to find our contentment in God as well. Uh, look at verses 5 and 6. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, David's not talking there about all the stuff that God gives him. He's not talking about a block of land when he says the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Uh, it's a metaphor. Um, his inheritance is not just a block of land or, or a kingdom uh, on this earth. He's talking about knowing God. God's greatest gift to us is himself. Uh, at the heart of real faith is delight and contentment in God himself. If we're only Christians because of the stuff we think God is going to give us, then it's kind of like getting married to someone and, and saying to them, I'm, I'm only in this for your money. Um, a real believer chooses to trust God to do more than just give great blessing. A real believer trusts God to be great blessing. Um, you are my portion and cup, says this psalm. So this is a choice that, the choice that the believer makes. They go all in for God. They choose to need only God and to follow only God and to focus on only God and to trust only God. So this is a challenge for me and for you as well, I assume, because we can, of course, be so distracted and so wishy-washy and so discontent at times and so compromised as God's people. And sometimes we don't know what we want and we, we rush from here to there trying to get satisfaction of some sort. And we need to ask ourselves, do I really know God? Um, you might ask yourself, do I actually know God? Do I see him as my greatest blessing? Uh, is he the centre of my life? Am I all in for God? Those are the questions we ought to be asking, I think, in response to this. Someone might think, well, is it really worth trusting God to that extent? I mean, if I go all in for God, is he going to be able to deliver? Is it going to pay off? But what else are you going to give yourself to? Um, everything else is temporary. It'll be gone. It'll be taken away before too long. Um, there'll come a time when your house will be gone if you have a house. There'll come a time when your money will be gone and your career will be gone and the clothes on your back will be gone and your family and friends will be gone because we all depart from this life with nothing. It'll all desert you in the end of this life. Except what is the one thing that you can hold on to forever? It's God as long as he holds on to us. And so the psalm next describes this hope of holding on to God and, and more, more accurately, him holding on to us, the hope that the believer has. When we make God our refuge, we're not just trusting him for now, we are trusting him to hold on to us forever. And that means we hope for some pretty huge realities. If I think God's going to hold on to me forever, then that's a big thing that I'm believing in. Firstly, verses 7 and 8 talk about having God with me in this life. Verse 7, he's our God, he, we give him praise, he counsels us through his word, his word instructs us as we dwell on it in our hearts. 
Verse 8, we keep our eyes on God. I've set the Lord always before me. So we go through life not looking to other things, but keeping God right in front of us and looking to him. And we'll find that he keeps his eyes on us. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So God strengthens us and helps us when we walk with him. So our hope for this life with God is that we will never be short of God's counsel. We will never be short of God's company. We'll never be short of God's care. That's verses 7 and 8. And then the psalm looks beyond this life to me being with God forever. Um, if you were here on Good Friday, Paul referred to the Lord of the Rings. I'm going to refer to the Lord of the Rings again. Sorry. Uh, um, but there's a famous love story in the Lord of the Rings between a human king and an elf princess. You know their names, most of you. Aragorn and Arwen. Liv Tyler. Um, so there's this love story, right? She's an elf, he's a human. But there's a problem because as an elf, she is immortal. As a human, he is mortal, he's going to die. How can a relationship between a mortal and an immortal possibly work? And so this elf girl's father pulls her aside and says, what are you doing? You realise that he's going to die, he's going to grow old and die one day and you're going to be left here all alone. It's not worth investing in this relationship. Uh, he didn't use that language, but that's, I think, what he meant. And we kind of have the same problem with God, don't we? How can a relationship between mortal humans and an immortal God possibly work? Something's going to have to change. Well, in The Lord of the Rings, the girl decides to become mortal. So she goes that way towards mortality. She decides when he dies, I'm going to die too. I think that's what happens. It doesn't happen in the story, but there's a Lord of the Rings nerd who knows that's what happens over there. The immortal person became mortal in order for them to be matched. But in the Christian gospel, God goes the other way. He does something far more wonderful than becoming mortal, in a sense. He, he makes the mortal immortal by resurrecting us to live with him forever. That's the promise of the Bible. Now, what does that look like? Notice that we hope for more than just a disembodied spirit life wafting around like ghosts. In verse 9, it says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure. So God won't just preserve the joy in our hearts and the praise on our tongues, He will secure our bodies, our whole beings, and He will raise our bodies to an immortal life. Notice that in the Easter morning accounts, like Luke 24, which Lynn read for us, the tomb was empty of Jesus' body. And when they inspected the tomb, the linen burial clothes were lying there without a body in them because the body of Jesus had been raised. And if you read on in the gospel, Jesus then appears to his disciples in a body and he says, you can touch me if you want to. And then he eats with them and drinks with them uh, in a real physical body. And this is the believer's hope. Verse 10, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. So God won't abandon us to death uh, in any sense. There's an ancient school of thought in which our bodies are kind of disposable and temporary and it's our souls that are our true selves and they are the bit that lives on forever. But in the Bible, my body is very much a part of me. It's not disposable. And so when God says to death, you cannot have that person, um, he's going to save our body as well as our soul. For Christians, the raising of the body doesn't come about until Jesus comes again, 
but we can still say that God will not abandon us to death. If God calls me to be with him forever, then he wants all of me to be with him forever. Not just me wafting around his throne like a bad smell for eternity, but me in a body with him forever, a whole person. And so our final hope concludes this psalm, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So he's really talking about fullness there. And so it must be the fullness of life, which includes an embodied experience. It's hard to imagine the richness of satisfaction and pleasure with God if that existence is not an embodied life. The final promise of the Bible, after all, is that heaven will invade this world. Um, God will reclaim this creation, purify it and liberate it from its bondage to decay and rid it of sin and death. And that includes the physical. And then God's people, of course, will live with God in this perfected world as perfected people in our bodies that God gives us. So when a Christian hopes to be with God forever, what we're hoping for is not a vague, narrow, thin, black and white, two-dimensional, boring kind of life where we just kind of float around forever. No, what we're hoping for is a richer, more colourful, fuller, more satisfying, more solid, deeper, more real and better life in this world than we have ever experienced when God makes all things new. So this psalm urges us to go all in for God because God is going to to go all the way with us into eternity. Joy in your presence, eternal pleasures at your right hand in a rich and full life. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of that promise. So here are two concluding thoughts from this psalm. First of all, Psalm 16 makes Jesus credible to us. When the disciples started proclaiming that this Jesus had risen from the dead, it was an incredible claim hard for people to believe, but they were quick to point out that God had promised to raise his man from the dead a thousand years before the Christ came along in Psalm 16. And so in Acts 2, Peter quotes from Psalm 16. In Acts 13, Paul quotes from Psalm 16. They say, look at Psalm 16. God promised to do this and now he's done it in Jesus. And this confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. God's raised him from the dead just like a thousand years ago he said he would. So let me say to you that if you find the resurrection of Jesus a bit hard to believe, at least you can note here that the Old Testament prophecies were already on this trajectory. It wasn't a surprise when it happened in a sense, it had been promised long ago here in Psalm 16. It's what God promised to do. And the second thing by way of conclusion here is Jesus makes Psalm 16 possible for us. He makes it possible for us to live this psalm. How can we dare hope that God could love us so much that he would make the mortal immortal and raise us from the dead so that he could have us with him forever. If I were God, would I want me with him forever? Uh, How could I dare hope for that? Well, Jesus has made it possible. Jesus died for me in order to make me holy. And then Jesus rose as the first fruits of eternal life. So I can actually have the life with God that this psalm begins to describe. Eternal life, embodied life, life with God forever. And so our response, since this is possible, and God is the only thing we'll really be able to keep anyway, if this is where we're going, our response should be 
to go all in with God, invest everything in God and eternity and this promise which has already be, uh, begun to come to fruition. If we have the hope of Psalm 16, the second half, the hope of resurrection, then we should make the choice of the first half of Psalm 16 and make God our refuge and our centre and our allegiance and our deepest contentment. And we should keep nothing back from God, make the same choice that David made. You might remember the words of the famous missionary martyr Jim Elliot, who went all in for God. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That is, if you go in all in for God, you are no fool, uh, because that is how you save everything. Whatever we keep back for ourselves in this life, we will lose in the end. But whatever we give to God, he will raise up. So the word resurrection is pretty familiar to Christians, uh, but I think it's perhaps a more profound hope than uh, we often realise. And it's a hope that does demand an all-in response. It's an all-or-nothing sort of belief, the belief in resurrection. And so, um, since you might have a day off tomorrow, let me invite you or urge you to spend a little bit of your spare time, maybe a quiet moment, pondering the enormous, profound hope that the resurrection of Jesus opens up for us. And consider the choices that you might make in order to invest in that hope. Okay, how am I going to invest myself in this hope? How, what does going all in for God look like for me? How do I make the Lord my refuge uh, and my centre and my ultimate allegiance? And how do I find all my contentment in God? Those are the things that I think we're being prompted to ponder and consider for ourselves in response to what we're looking at here. So let me pray that God moves us in that direction now. Loving Father, we thank you for this wonderful thing that you have done for us, that Jesus not only died to take away our sin, but he rose again to open up eternal life for us. And we thank you, Lord, for the hint that we have in this psalm that eternal life will be so rich and full and it includes new bodies. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as you have committed so much to us so that we can be with you forever, you would help us to, to know, each of us, to know how to go all in for you, um, to invest everything in our relationship with you, which you have made possible. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.